Welcome to this edition of Toby Haydock's Who's Round, or should that be Doctor Who's Round? Once again, I'm being given hospitality by somebody who's... Uh, antics I watched as a child and have <laughs> followed ever since. So I'm going to ask my latest uh, collaborator to tell me who she is and why I'm talking to her about Doctor Who. Hello, my name is Wendy Danvers and I believe I've been talked about in Doctor Who. Um, the only claim to fame that I can have about that particular thing was that I believe that I was the only person who actually said the words Doctor Who um, in any Doctor Who programme, up to the time I was following them. Because the words I spoke were, Doctor? What Doctor? Doctor Who? And those were the words I had to say. Um, other than that, it was very short appearance, and I enjoyed it enormously, except that I had to sit through the whole lot where nobody forgot a single word, and I thought, I've only got about half a dozen words to say, and I'm going to forget them. And I was the last person to speak, and I thought, I can't be the only person who has to have a retake or anything. I can't even remember. It could be could have gone out live. No, it couldn't have gone out live. Sorry, I talk like this. Forgive no, that's me. All, that's fine. I'm checking myself all the time. Um, but I know I was so nervous um, because I had to, the last lines of the whole thing. They'd all sweated through hours and hours. And there was I coming on and going to forget it. And I thought, no, no, that's not going to happen. <laughs> well, because it, it's the it's the curse of Peladon, and you're right. You, uh, you you have to to get to your bit. You have to watch the whole of the story, and you're, yes. you're coming at the end of episode four. Yeah. But I, I, as you say, if you're going to have a, a sort of a scene and a half in Doctor Who at the end of an episode, to say the words Doctor Who, and you get the final close up when the TARDIS yes. dematerializes, yes. and it's your uncomprehending face. That's that's pretty good for somebody who sweeps in at the last minute. Yes, I suppose it is. Yes, I suppose it is. Um... I don't disappear into the sunset or anything like that. I'm just there looking aghast at the disappearing. Um, the, the awful thing about, about that programme was, the thing that I do remember, that I have to talk to this weird figure, which is just an eye or something. It looks actually like a, a waste bin. Um, it's got an eye and everything. But, and she's chatting away to me. But the sound is coming from somewhere else. So you're, and you know you're, you're, you want your eyes to go where the sound is. And you're, you're not, you, you have to keep talking to this inanimate object here, which is being machined, worked, and the voice is coming from somewhere right a long way to your left or to your right or something. Yes, that's, that's Alpha Centauri. Who yes, is, yes, yes. His body was manipulated but the, by Stuart Fell and then the voice was his Aunt Church. Yes, yeah. Probably in a cupboard somewhere. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that, it was actually very difficult to do, um, especially if you're sort of nervous and... I don't know, I found it was quite difficult to do that. Um, well, it, and it was directed by Lenny Main. Yes. Were, so did, yes. so how, how did you know Lenny? I knew Lenny because, uh, um, actually, it's one of those... Well, I met him at a party, and somebody sort of said, oh, Wendy's an actress too or something, and he said, well, I can use you in my next Doctor Who I'm doing. And it was just like that, and the next thing I had a job. Fantastic. Um, yeah. We both had a great friend called Pamela Davis, who used to do the Pamela Davis dancers, who did all the Cliff Richard shows and things and it was one of Pamela Davis's parties 
Lenny unfortunately died soon after that, so um, I didn't get any more work from him. <laughs> Which is always a shame, because if you get known by a director, you will get much more work. I mean, directors do like to employ people they know. Mm. Um, there were a few directors that I, I found I would get repeats of work with from them, which was nice, and others, they came and went directors, didn't they, a bit? Oh, indeed, indeed. Yeah. And what sort of fellow was he? What do you remember about him as a person, Lenny? Nice, very nice. Sort of fresh and young and um, and pleasant, you know, and a, a good director because um, he knew what he wanted and got on with it. You know, no waffling around. I've worked a lot with directors in latter years who seem to have not done any homework. I mean, I won't name any of them, but I, I don't know if you've had the same thing, but you, you don't think they've even looked at the script before they came out. Um, and they're, usually their assistants are doing all the work. And they see, all, all nowadays all seem to have a lot more people helping them than in those days the director was much more hands-on too. Mm. Um, he would physically handle you, you know, if you came up. He said, look, don't turn around like this or bend down like that, you know. They were much more, um, um, I think so. Mind you, I'm thinking back a lot way and I can't, a long way, and I can't always uh, rely on my memory. Sometimes I think, I think I must have imagined that. <laughs> um, the weirdest thing today is because you realise we're talking about probably 60 years ago for me. Um, no, it could have been a no. We worked today, didn't it? It's for, it was for because it was two. 40. It was two years before I was born, and I am forty. So it's forty-three years ago. Forty-three years ago. Yeah. yeah. Well, that that was a long time, mm. um, and the world has changed so much. I feel as if I've been on a a merry-go-round, and it's. I think think you know. Some days I think I think it's time I got off, and other days I say, oh no, I must see what's round the corner. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yes. And do you think it's changed for better or worse, or just different? Um, some for better, some for worse. It is different. Very, very different. People are different. Um, people are just different. They think differently, they act differently. Um, you know, the funny thing was, the thing that um, I remember, that in my upbringing, when I was very small, before the war, Everybody knew their place. That sounds like a horrible, horrible thing to say. You know, everybody knew their place. Um, and people didn't think outside the box of their places. Uh, does this make sense to you? Yeah. The result was that I think in, a lot, in the majority of cases, people were far happier. Because when people know who they are and what's expected of them... I don't know, you know, maybe I'm wrong. And, and I... I, I'm not necessarily saying that that was right at the time, because I think right is very much an individual thing, because what is right for you probably may not be right for me, and vice versa. Um, so it's difficult to say as to whether it's better or worse, but it is definitely different. Um, well, so so take us take us right back. What 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 was your background, and was 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 an acting life always going to be for you? And acting life was always going to be for me. From my very earliest, um, I can remember the first school I went to, I can remember being a flower fairy in the school play and loving every minute of it and singing a little song. 
And then the next school I went to, I still wanted to be a fairy, but I'd put on a bit of weight by then. And um, they said, I'm sorry, you're too, you're too fat to be a fairy. And I learned, I always learned all everybody's part in, in a play if I was in it. And so when the, fat, when the real fairy went um, sick on the night of the performance, I knew her part. So I was the fat fairy with everything done up with safety pins, but that didn't bother me, you know. I was a fairy and I didn't care that I was a fat fairy because I was a fairy. Um, and then I always got acclaim for uh, when I went you know, to bigger schools. I always got the leads and all the performances and people coming after and saying to me, you ought to be an actress, you ought to be an actress. And I thought, the only thing I want to be is an actress. So when I left school, unfortunately, it coincided with the end of the war. And I went to the drama schools to see if I could get into any of them, you know, sort of prepared with audition speeches and everything. They were only employing, having people who had been in the forces. What I don't think anybody realises is that after the war, all colleges, everything, um, would only take, uh, they had a priority all the time on people who had been, dis no, what's the word I'm trying to think of? When you're um, In invalided, no, 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 no. When you oh, discharge, oh, yeah, is yeah. the word. Yes, um, they all had priorities to take um, people who'd been in the services, and so if you were a sort of a teenager who just left school, you hadn't a hope of getting into any college anywhere. And my second love at that time was drawing and painting, uh, and I had a great uh, teacher, an art teacher, and she said, "We'll try and see if you can get into an art school." So I tried a couple of art schools, and then um, I remember being at the Hammersmith School of Building and Arts and Crafts in those days, and um, I saw the headmaster who said, look, I'm sorry, but I like your stuff, because I'd taken, again, a portfolio of stuff. But he said, we just don't have a place for you here, because, you know, we're having to take all these people. And I was, so I was leaving the school, I remember walking down this corridor, and somebody came up to me and said, can I help you? You look lost, because actually I was just looking at the drawings on the wall. And for some unknown reason, I said, yes, I'm a new student. I'm looking for the art, uh, for the life class. So he said, oh, I'll take you there. So he took me and he went and he said, I've, he said to the teacher, he said, I found one of your students wandering around. And he just said, come on, sit down and set me up. And I was there for a year before anybody knew I was there. <laughs> and after a year, when it was the name was being taken for the exams, I had to confess that you know, because um, he wrote me on, he wrote my name on the register, you see, um, because it was the beginning of the term. And I had to go and see the headmaster again. And he said, I seem to remember telling you that we didn't have a place for you here. And I thought, oh, God. And he said, you, you appear to have proved me wrong. <laughs> and he probably <laughs> gave me a grant then. And um, so I stayed on with all my goods and shackles paid for. But my heart wasn't really in art at all because... With acting, I could satisfy myself. And anything I ever drew never satisfied me or painted. Never, never. I was left every time after a painting thinking, that's not what I wanted to do. It's not what I had in mind. But I didn't get that feeling after acting um, at all. Uh, so I never got a training. And um, I was a bit depressed by all this and... And then um, I discovered boys soon after this, and they became my priority for a while. Um, and then I began to think how I wanted to act. And I saw an advertisement for a 
uh, London group that was forming the Redcliffe players and they were looking for um, people and so I went along and saw them. It was only an amateur company and I was with them but it was much more professional than the majority. I don't know, today we, we rented theatres and it was more like a fit-up company. And I met my husband through that and that um, sort of finished my acting career because um, we got married and then it was a question of, um, you know, I had to earn some money to pay, help pay the rent because up until then I was living at home. So I had various careers doing various things for a long time and then... Um, uh, I got divorced. My marriage, I had children and bought, you know, and then my husband went off with somebody else. During that time, actually, I had picked up with Fanny Craddock because I'd been working for the Daily Mail Ideal Home Exhibition, looking after all their VIPs. And one of the VIPs I had to look after was Fanny. And Fanny and I got on so well that she sort of said, Darling, you must come and work for me. So um, I did, and I used to work and do all her mise en place for all her tours. So it wasn't full-time work, but every time she had a tour, I would work with her. And I worked with her. I didn't do the television work, but I actually worked with her when she did theatre and um, gas company things. Um, and that went on. And also, shortly after that, when my marriage broke up, I met a cousin of mine who was an actor. And I said, I really want to act, you know, I really want to act, but I can't do anything because I can't get a membership of equity. And he said, I'll get you a membership of equity. And somehow I think he got me some work and then got me an e equity card. And he, said, well, he said, I could use some of my work with Fanny Craddock too to get an equity card. So I got my equity card and then I got an agent and I started to get sort of, you know, very small bit parts. And um, I then started also doing a lot of walk-on work too. I never did extra work um, because, you, you know, I always got contracts with the walk-on work. But it was, um, it was useful and it kept me in the business. And I used to get occasional parts and occasional um, lines and things. And I just loved it. I loved it so much, you know, sort of being a part of it and meeting all the, uh, the stars. And I mean, I always wanted to be an actress ever since I was a child. Um, I used to write plays and make my family act in them all. <laughs> um, uh, you know, every Christmas I used to write another play, usually in rhyme, rather bad rhyme. Um, Cinderella, hurry up, before I go I want my sup. That was the sort of lines I wrote, because <laughs> I remember them to this day. Mm. And once I started doing that work, I have had wonderful, wonderful experiences. The days I've thought, imagine doing this and being paid to do it. I mean, I can't tell you the amount of times I've sort of sat there and thought, I'm sitting here in the Albert Hall and being paid to be here, or I'm sitting here in somewhere and, and being paid to be here. You know, it was just, it was just a wonderful way to live. Plus the fact that I was fighting to sort of bring up two children on my own, and we had a big house which I'd let out in rooms, and I was also cooking for the lodgers, so I was flying about. I had Swedish au pair girls in. It was chaos. How my children were ever brought up in that atmosphere, I don't know. But they seemed to have survived. And um, also, when you weren't working, I was doing so many other jobs. Um, 
I had one time I had machines in the sitting room which I was putting poppers on skirts and whenever I had any spare time I was in there six months to skirt you know doing the skirts up I used to pick cars up and drive them from A to B um, I worked in a Kentucky Fried Chicken shop for a while you know all these things between um, jobs yeah I mean I'm sure most actors babysitting anybody wanted a babysitter anybody that wanted a bit of gardening done you know I would do it um, it was just sort of making money here, there, and everywhere. Um, and, of course, you know, I had a, a life to lead as well. I had lots of friends. I had quite a lot of boyfriends, too. Uh, quite a lot of actors, but, you know, they're a bit of a waste of time, actually. <laughs> well, you shouldn't date an actor. <laughs> uh, not unless you're... I suppose you understand the life and everything, but... Um, no, the, also the trouble is that by that time I was sort of getting on for 30, which seemed very old in those days, or in my 30s. And um, it always seemed to me that the men only wanted one thing, and I just that wasn't my, my game. You know, I liked to be friends before I went to bed with anyone, I, you know, to know who they were and that sort of thing. And it tickles me today because a lot of this sort of... Um, they're talking about... Uh, what the, you know, the these producers and directors and the groping and the things. Of course it went on, but if you said no, they didn't mess about, you know. I mean, they had plenty of fish to fry, and <laughs> the times I got groped and I merely gave them a slap or, or said, just pack that up, you know. And, I mean, I've even been in situations where, um, but, you know, if you can kick hard enough or you can show that you don't want it, there's... There's not many maniacs about, if you know what I mean, um, who are going to murder you for it. It's mostly sort of rather ardent suitors who you've probably egged on a bit too far. So that and sort of that sort of casual or, or even um, uh, invigorated um, sort of advances were, were, were par, par for the course. Yes, yes, yes. You learned how to look after yourself. Well, we can't, we can't let mention of um, Fanny Craddock, the infamous TV chef, pass without... Um, some insight then from somebody who worked with her so closely because she had a, a formidable reputation. So. Oh, she did, yes. I mean, she, she, most of my memories of her are fairly hilarious because um, during the time I was um, with Fanny, I was married, and I went to the south of France with her on several holidays, um, which was fun. And I can remember once we were in the south of France and we were in a lady's loo and a woman was looking at us and... Um, she suddenly, she went up to Fanny and she said, I hope you won't be offended if you're not, but are you Fanny Craddock? <laughs> and Fanny was furious. I couldn't stop laughing. She said, Wendy, stop it. <laughs> uh, you know, she, she said, that woman was rude. I said, I think she was just very funny. You know, but... Um, uh, and that, that's just one of my memories. And um, oh, a lot of them, really. And then um, uh, we were living in Chester, at that point I was and she was doing something in Manchester and she was staying with me and I can remember sort of the first night for supper um, she said darling you know you are the first person that is of, of my people that have cooked for me or very few people cook for me in their own homes they she said it's, it's very seldom I go to restaurants with people but I very seldom go to people's homes they think that um, they can't cook for me and all that sort of thing and then and I'd made uh, something and I'd made it with um bought puff pastry, which was sort of quite new in those days. And she said, darling, your puff pastry is absolutely marvellous. I couldn't have done better myself. So I said, Fanny, I have to confess to you, it's bought. 
it's just roll puff pastry. And she looked at me with her eyes, which go absolutely manic at a time. And she said, and she's one of these people that seizes your arm before she speaks to you, you know, and there's all the drama goes on. And she said, Johnny, we could use this. It would do our reputation no harm at all. <laughs> and the next thing I know, she's got a big contract with Just Roll Soft Pastry worth thousands. And I never cashed in on that one. Oh, you should have had, you should have had 10% of all I of that. I should have, definitely, yes, yes. And then that, when she was staying with me, I took a, we all went to the theatre in Manchester, and she said, oh, God, she said, it'd be so nice to go somewhere where I'm not recognised. So what does she do? She puts on a white fur coat and walks in with dark glasses. <laughs> and late, you know, about the last person, and she does a complete entrance so that everybody sort of, you know, rather like that. And, and of course, John, she could think she was disguised, but nobody could disguise Johnny. No. You know, so, I mean, if she wanted to be some detail, she shouldn't walk about Johnny unless he had a hat on or a beard or something. Well, and what about him? Because, I mean, the, 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 the stereotypical image of Fanny Craddock and Johnny is that she, she was very bossy and he was very sort of yes, Fanny, no, Fanny. He was scared stiff of her. He was really scared. Because the time I heard her, she could really shriek at him and yell at him. And she, she I mean, I was in the car with him once and um, she started telling him where to go. You know, he, she started, you've got to go here, John, you've got to go here, John, and sort of thing. She, he said, oh, shut up. And she said, don't you shut up for me. Just you don't forget who you are. You know, and she was going on and on to him for hours. You would be nothing without me. I took you and I made you from a, you know, and she really, really rattled at him. Uh, you know, she was awful to him. Um, I was horrified that she could come out with language like that. Um, but she loved him. In a strange, strange way, because apparently when eventually he did go into hospital, she wouldn't go and see him. She wouldn't go near him, you know, although um, she swore she always loved him. Oh, she, she always used to, um, she had this lovely garden um, at the house she had, and I remember once somebody saying to her, um, your tomatoes, the flavour of them are absolutely wonderful. What do you put on them? And she said, tea and pea. And she said never heard of that. She said, of course you've heard of tea. And she said, yes, tea. And she said, and pee. <laughs> and she used to have a bucket every night, you know, that she used, and it would all go on the tomatoes the next day. And so tea and pee is her recommendation for, for tomatoes. But she was, a, she was ruthless. In other words, she said to me one day, she was talking, she said, I can't get a really moist um, gingerbread. And I said, I've got a wonderful recipe of my grandmother's which I'll give you. And she made this gingerbread. She said, it's fantastic. And then the next thing in the cookery books is my grandmother's um, cookery books. And she used to spend hours and hours with tomatoes. Um, and she would put them into boiling water and then into cold water to peel them, you know. I said, Mad Fanny, you've got gas cookers. There's a much quicker way. Stuck them on a fork, turn the gas on, and just do that in the gas. And, you know, the peel comes off. And she looked at me like that. And from then onwards... She did that all the time, and she advertised it on her gas cooker. She said, another thing you can do with a gas cooker, you know. She used everything, you know, that, um, that, that, that she could get from you. Um, but you liked her? I loved her, you know, because there's something... I don't know, I, lo I love bad people. <laughs> if, if I meet a con man, as long as I know they're a con man, then I won't be conned, which I, I can judge fairly quickly. Um, I think, or I could. I, I love them. I think. I think they're so so entertaining, and 
I love people's lies, you know, when when people tell you great lies about things they've done and haven't done. And You'd uh, get on famously with Brian Blessed then, I should oh, probably, think. Probably, <laughs> yes. And I don't mind... You see, the other thing is... I mean, I'm talking like a mad thing now because you want me to. But normally, I don't talk, I listen. With people like Fanny, I, I don't compete, you know, and, um, uh, you know, several people I've known like that. Um because I know that they don't really want to listen. They want to be listened to. And I just enjoy it. I'm just lapping it up, you know, and thinking to myself, this will be a good thing to tell someone, you know. This will be good, good at a dinner party. Well, something. and, you know, your references are, are right up to date in terms of colourful characters and talking about bad boys. It's tell, tell us about the time you were... Seduced by Russell Brand. Oh, no, I wasn't seduced. He tried to. He tried very hard to seduce me. That was, apparently, that was his actual brief. He was doing a, a set of programmes called um, Rebrand, I think. And um, he was trying experiments of what it's like to live or, or to be a handicapped person, to be a homosexual, to be um, um, different things. And one of them was to be in love with an older, older woman, you know. Um, or to seduce an older woman, something to do with, you know, something like that, I don't know. And um, uh, and this was the... I was just told that I was to go to um, Eastbourne with Russell Brand and we, got, we had to pretend we were married to get what people's attitude was um, for an older man to be... a younger man to be with an older woman because it's always acceptable for an older man to be with a younger woman. Sure. But how acceptable is it for an older man to be with a younger woman? That was my briefing, you see. Um, so, um, but fairly quickly on, I sussed out that he was um, different. <laughs> uh, you know, he was really sweet, and in, in the train going down and everything, he met me at the station with a bunch of flowers. And, um, but he did most of the talking. He, you know, I was able to sort of sum him up and listen very well to begin with, because... You know, he didn't really ask me many questions. But once he got going, I, I mean, he was asking me the most awful questions, and I had to keep thinking. I was mic'd up the whole time, and I had to keep thinking to myself, my grandchildren could be watching this. I have got to watch what I say. And when he sort of turned to me at one point and said, um, and do you hate? And I thought, I've got to cover up. How the hell do I answer this? So I said, well, when I was at school, we were told if we did that, we would turn into a man. If you were a woman, you'd turn into a man. I don't know where I got that from. And he said, oh, my God, if I'd known that, he said, I'd been at it all the time, you know, and all this sort of thing. So I had to keep sort of like playing tennis and, you know, hitting the ball back to him, as it were, which was quite easy because he'd always pick the ball up again, you know. Yeah. He was, he was never lost, uh, for the word. But I did get a bit sort of... Um, during the course of the thing, and and he was saying some awful things, you know. Um, it means for sort of somebody was saying, uh, I can remember one time having to put my hand over his mouth in the thing. I said, you can't say things like that because he was. Somebody was saying, are you in love? And he said, um, I don't know. What, we, we we stopped the people in the street and sort of said to them, you know, we're in love and we want to get married. What do you think? We're trying to get an opinion about it, and. Um, and one time, he started going on about, oh, we were having sex last night for such a... And he was going on and on with these awful sort of details. And eventually, I put my hand in front of him, stop it! 
Like that. So you, uh, well, we we alluded to this before we started recording, but you've done quite a lot of that sort of acting where you don't have the backup of a script necessarily. So and, and you're interacting no. with the public. You no. enjoy that? No. no, I had to. Uh, I mean, I've done some really mad things. Um, one of them was, I can, and if only I could remember people's names. Um, I had to uh, do a mock-up. Some some actor who presented a program. And I, can't think of his name, um, had said that he wanted to meet um, um, a pole dancer. And they played some music and I had to sort of literally, um, in shoes almost like this, you know, do a pole dance. I had no idea how to do a pole dance. I sort of did things around this. And then I started to take my jacket off and throw that off. You know, it was like this. I was dressed a bit like this, you see. And, and then um, um, I had to sort of go and confront him in the programme, on the actual live programme. And they said, we have now got the pole dancer for you. And then they showed him, first of all, doing this dance. And then they introduced him to me. He wasn't very pleased, actually. Um, oh, so it was a sort of setup. Was it like a Noel Edmonds sort of yes. thing? Oh, yes, I did a lot for Noel Edmonds, too. But, but um, Noel Edmonds, that was the thing that I nearly got into trouble with newspapers and things for. Because... Um, I was briefed by, I was working for um, Noel, Noel Edmonds House Party, was yeah, it, or something? Yeah. And I had to be sent, set down. My setup was I had to take a dog with me and try and get Chris Evans. I had to wait outside the studio and to try and get, I hate telling this story actually, Chris Evans to um, pat my dog. And then they were going to do a thing like they did in that film. They're going to kill the dog the next day, you know. Or, drop a piano on it or something, you know. Um, because it was that everything Chris Evans touches becomes a disaster or something. I don't know. I really didn't get the whole thing. Well, um, I managed to find Chris Evans coming out, and I went up to him and I said... Um, um, I mean, they didn't give me any script or anything. They said, just go and talk to him. Of course, I was my up. And I said, I didn't actually know Chris Evans very well, um, who he was. I was not sort of... She was not a big name in my life at the time. I said, um, um, I know somebody said to me, his programme has, has, has just started again, or had just finished one programme. And um, I said, I really wanted to meet you because um, your programme, your, your Monday morning programme has just finished, and my dog, I, he, he was given to me on the day it started, on, on the day of Thursday, so I called him Chris. So I'd really like you to say hello to him. Um, I mean, this was the, the, the brief. I, saw, I, I mean, I just invented this, you see. He was charming. And he said, come into the studio, come into the studio. He said, come in and have a... And I said, no, I can't do that because of the dog. Oh, he said, it won't, that, that won't matter. matter. I've been told not to go inside under anything because, you know, he couldn't hear me there. So I said, no, I won't if you don't mind because, uh, um, you know... Uh, so he said, well, thank you very, very much. You've made my day. And so I said, well... Um, so the next pretty morning on the um, on his program on his breakfast program, he said, "You meet the nicest people in this business." I met this lovely lady who'd come up from Weybridge with her dog, especially for me to pat it because he'd. And I felt like absolute. <laughs> and then they discovered it was a con, and he discovered it because the next day they sent someone else up to do something else, and they obviously made a <laughs> of it, but got. It got sussed out, so then he sussed out that I must have been one of these things too, 
and I had um, the Kenny Everett show phoning me up and saying, you're not to talk to the press, you're not to talk to anybody, you know, and my agent sort of saying, uh, and my, uh, my agent had said the other, the other person along too, so they lost, they didn't have any more of the um, Kenny Everett shows after that, and I don't know, but it was all in the papers uh, too, you know, one of the papers picked it up and there was... Um, it was all about it. So that, so that was the Noel Edmonds, but you'd done Kenny Everett prior to that? I'm, I'm... No, I'd done Kenny Everett. That was Noel yeah, Edmonds. That was yes, Noel, so Edmonds, that was Noel yeah. Edmonds, yes. No, I'd, I'd done Kenny Everett. Kenny Everett was lovely. I loved him. Oh, he was... He was a hundred. Noel Edmonds... Mm, you know. Um, yes, not my favourite person, but yes, I, thought, I think I had a confrontation with Mr Blobby or something at one point. A dangerous fellow, Mr Blobby. <laughs> Never worked with animals, children, or polka dotted. <laughs> yes, yes. Monsters. Pink monsters. Yes, I think that I, I think I, I did have a bad experience with Mr. Bobbin. I can't remember much about it, except thinking at the time, when he gets into that costume, he's mad. He's a perfectly normal man when you're talking to him. He gets into the costume and no holds barred. The you blobby know. takes over. The blobby takes over. And you could be knocked over and hurt quite badly, you know, because. Um, there's no sense to Mr. Blobby. I can't remember what that was in. I was in a lot of children's programmes. I worked with um, uh, an awful lot of children's programmes, um, both with parts and with sort of just um, doing silly things with them. Uh, so, you, but you seem to have got therefore a reputation for being somebody who could be relied upon. To think on their feet, and because yes. that's a, that's a, that's a, a lot of actors, yeah. I would say, aren't comfortable doing that. Yeah. You can't do no, that. No, no. If you just said to me, "Stand up and talk for twenty minutes," I could probably do it, and I could probably tell you a story. And I don't know, you know, I don't want to. No, <laughs> but you'll you'll do it if you need to. I'll do it if I need to. And I I love actually improvisation. You know, I mean, I don't think I would do it now. But if you sort of said. Um, pretend there's a wasp flying round and it's suddenly got round you like that, you know, sort of. I love doing it, you know. <laughs> I love it. So, what have been your jobs over the years that we haven't mentioned then that you've particularly enjoyed? Yeah, I keep forgetting them all. I, I, I just forget them. Occasionally I'm watching television and I think, I've been there and I realise that it's. Um, <laughs> it's on a job. And I've got a dress like that, or I had a dress like that, and I realise it's me. <laughs> oh, oh, I see. So it's not just the place; it's you, it's you me. in the pictures. Yeah, I don't even remember myself. I don't remember saying things, and my uh, my grandchildren always say, "We found you on YouTube. You're with a dog, and you're not letting this dog go on a um, on a football field or something." I said, "I've never done that. Never done that." And then I realised that I was on an early. Oh, I don't know. Um, a lot of the comedians today had Alan Armstrong and people like that. They had, used to have their own shows, and Armstrong and somebody. Armstrong and Miller. And Miller, that's right. Armstrong and Miller. Yeah. That's right, because I was on a couple of those. Oh, I did a lot of commercials, an awful lot of commercials. And fortunately, the only one I ever got recognised for was one I did for um, um, Asda. And everybody used to stop me in the street and go like that. Oh, it was the tap, tap it in was the, the pocket. Tap in the pocket one. Yeah. Um, 
And I did a few, I did, as I got older, I've done a lot for sort of Macmillan and, you know, a lot of the posters. And I remember my my nephew going into a post office there. I looked up and suddenly there was my my Auntie Wendy sitting up there gazing at me from, you know, from the post office thing because I'd done one for the post office. And I did a lot of hand commercials too, which was good. That brought in quite a lot of money. Just your hands were seen? Just my hands, yes. Um, because a lot of actors and actresses, particularly older ones, um, God, I can't remember, again, names of people. There was one actress, and she, she did a lot of the commercials for the electricity board, but she had very arthritic hands. So she would do all the talking and all the things like that. And when it came to that or anything, it was my hand. You know, it was never hers, or if there was anything that was the hand, or, or the package shots were always my hands. And a lot of the pack shots I did because... Um, a lot of famous people can't do pack shots. It's quite a, a knack. Um, it's very, very disciplined doing a pack shot because you have to, well, I don't know if you've ever done any, but you have to bring them up literally to, you've got to know, see your, your place in space where you've got to put, put it because, and never have your finger over the name. And there's, there's it's a lot, lot to know. A lot of skill to something that looks simple yeah. until you have to do yeah. it. A pack yeah. shot is quite a, um, an art. Yeah. I can remember doing Aunt Bessie's, um, was it Aunt Bessie's puddings? Yes, I did, I did Aunt Bessie's um, Yorkshire puddings. Oh, I did so many. I can't remember them. One was, and the amount of eating and spitting out I did, you know, with a bucket beside you, and you sort of go, ah, oh, mm. <laughs> as soon as they call cut, like that. No, oh, God, I can't remember half the things I've done. That's okay. I did one film, which I think is now on, um, I paid Esmond Purdom's housekeeper in it. And um, I did have quite a few lines in that. But it is on the list somewhere of the world's worst films. No. It was called Do Not Open Until Christmas. And it was all about somebody who was killing Santa Clauses. And while they were filming it, they had no idea who was the, um, the person that was doing it. And one time they sort of said, well, should we use the housekeeper? You know, me. But, no. <laughs> I used to get a lot of sort of regular walk-ons. In other words, for years, I was a, a walk-on cleaner in um, EastEnders in the E40, you know. Oh, yes. Uh, and I used to always be going in to do that. I was um, on the on the bill. I was a canteen assistant for many, many years, you know. I mean, they were lovely. If you got a regular walk-on job, it was but, really nice. Really and you didn't good. mind not having lines and no. not doing... Occasionally you get a line and a little bit more money. But that didn't bother me, you know, you got to know everybody. You, you were with a crowd, you know, you were... Uh, and everybody was lovely on the bill and places like that, you know. And even on East Enders, they were all friendly. Um, but this was right at the beginning. And then Holby City, I was... Um, I think I went round with a tea, you know, and a tea wagon. I had lots of tea wagons and things. And you'd occasionally get a bit of business, as they called it, you know, where you either went into somebody and said sorry or something, you know. It was just... You never knew what would happen quite. I've actually had several parts, speaking parts on the bill, too, at different times. Uh, so it's, you know, you never knew what was going to be happening. But I've never really, um, I gave up the theatre. I, I did do some theatre, um, not a lot, and it was low, not, not in the West End ever. Um, at Woking, 
basically like that. But um, I was too nervous. I didn't like it anymore. Um, I was all right once I was on, but I was finding it more and more difficult to learn parts. And um, I think that's what sort of put me off, never really going for... Um, I just loved what I was doing, little bits here and there. And if I didn't have to speak, that was lovely. I'd have been a wonderful um, mime artist. Or if I had to play the part, I'd love to have got a part, say, um, where I was the granny who never spoke, but always did a lot of reaction and <laughs> action, but never had any words. You know, or just sort of squawked occasionally. Or had a had one line, you know. I need a low! <laughs> <laughs> Well, like that. I mean, does it surprise you? Because you were very kindly, you know, for this project I've written to, you know, I write to people and hope for the best, and you mm. very kindly phoned me up and, and, and said I could come round. So does it surprise you that, you know, you still get letters for for, for your Fair couple letters. of scenes in Doctor Who? Yeah, yeah, amazes me. And I went to one of these seminars, or whatever they call them, but they wanted photographs with me, and I didn't look anything like I looked then, you know. I mean, it was... A, a grey-haired old lady who'd actually at that time had just come out of hospital, so um, it did me a hell of a lot of good going there. And um, my daughter took me, and she said, "You were sitting there, and your ego was being stroked." <laughs> <laughs> and I loved that expression, um, but I know what she meant. It was like that. You suddenly felt, and they're an odd lot, all the Doctor Who fans. You know, when you get them all on mass, mm. um, an awful lot of sort of. Um, what would you call them, sort of uh, train spotters? <laughs> yes. Well, look, I've exceeded the time I said I would uh, well, no, spend, spend I've got nothing you, to yeah. do here. So, um, um, well, I will... Happy, but... I, we can draw the uh, the official proceedings to a close with the two final questions, which are, um, because, as you know, you've given your time for nothing and uh, the listener hasn't paid to hear what we've been saying, so we ask the listener to donate to a charity of your choice, which is... Um, I have to have two because I subscribe to all cancer charities because I think it's important that I also have cancer. So, you know, I have an interest in that. But I also have um, a great love for the lifeboat service. I think they need constant sort of... They are only supported by voluntary contributions. I think they don't have any, um, any other money. So those are my two favourite charities. Uh, and the final question is because we nominally have convened to talk about Doctor Who, but... As always, we talk about far more interesting things as well. But this uh, podcast was conceived with the idea of um, uh, celebrating Doctor Who and its 50th anniversary, which it celebrated a couple of years ago. So what is your message to the Doctor Who fans out there? Oh, keep watching, keep loving, keep believing, or don't believe a thing you see. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what a pleasure. Wendy Danvers, thank you very much. That was great. Thank you. Well, thank you. to Wendy had a lovely afternoon in her company what a fabulous lady and she nominated two charities the lifeboats are RNLI the RLRNLI which is RNLI.org and cancer research I guess you could do cancer research cancerresearchuk.org cancerresearchuk all one word dot org but uh, she said uh, any and all cancer charities and I'm sure as it's such a pernicious thing you may have one that has touched 
uh, a family or a loved one or, or both. Um, so I'll say uh, choose whichever one uh, you would like to donate to, I guess, of the, of the cancer ones. Um, that's, of course, if you can. There's no obligation, but uh, if everyone who listened to this just gave a little bit, we might, uh, might do a little bit of good. Um, there's another of these next time. Uh, my thanks, as I say, to Wendy and to Peter for driving me there. Until the next time, I am the Chairman Delegate from Earth, also known as Toby Ado. Goodbye. Finish presents Doctor Who Short Trips Rule Book. The Valtor are all hibernating, and we helped the Alani. Why would they move the TARDIS? The Doctor paced. Are you sure this is the correct bay? Perry asked. This warehouse isn't that big. Is it the same warehouse? Maybe we transmit it back to a different one? The doctor rubbed his chin. I suppose it's possible, he said. Though this room does look very familiar. We could double-check the Transmat Station identifier code, but I think you'll find my memory is as reliable as ever. The Transmat code is VXB92, stroke 7, stroke B3. Perry and the doctor turned. There in the doorway stood a young Alani woman with the golden skin, dark hair, yellow eyes and thin, fox-like features of her race. She was dressed in the standard unfussy uniform of the Alani government and carried a clipboard. My name is Yorval. You are aliens with no visitor permits. Please complete these forms and return them to the Office of Border Regulation. The sooner we can process them, the sooner we can get you allocated. Big finish. We love stories.